Would you bet a few thousand dollars that you could sink an eight-foot putt? What about 10 grand that you could win a drag race against a Camaro with a thousand horsepower? If you bet $2 million, could you bet it all on one football game? Maybe you wish you could, but you probably wouldn't. Gamblers is about the people who did. From Spotify and the Ringer Podcast Network comes Gamblers Season 2. Listen now. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The second half of the NBA season is here, and you can bet on the action with an assist from FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook. Right now, you can check the new and improved Parlay Hub. Filter by odds, sport, and bet type to easily find the most popular parlays and same-game parlays, all on one page. Plus, start betting on the Explore page in the Pulse and bet live same-game parlays for every NBA game. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit theringer.com slash RG to learn more about the resources and helplines available. And listen to the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus in president-select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit theringer.com slash RG. This episode is brought to you by Lincoln in the all-new 2024 Nautilus Hybrid. Featuring a customizable 48-inch panoramic display, available Revel audio system, and available perfect position front seats with active motion massage. Oh my God. The world isn't wide enough. Visit lincoln.com to learn more. Some models, trims, and features may not be available or may be subject to change. Check with your local retailer for current information. Lincoln and Nautilus are trademarks of Ford or its affiliates. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. A rare night in Boston as both the Celtics and the Bruins lose on the same night. We very rarely see this, and we saw it tonight as the C's go down to the Knicks, and of course the B's went down to the Lightning in Tampa. We'll get into that in just a little bit. Eric Edholm from the NFL Network, NFL Media, he's going to join us coming up in just a little bit. We'll get into the Bill O'Brien hiring. We'll also get into this crazy story from the Herald today about the dysfunction in the Patriots locker room, mainly the offensive section of the locker room. And Eric's a big draft guy, so we'll get into what the Patriots can do at 14 and what he expects from Tyquan Thornton going forward and also Mac Jones. We'll see if he's still in on Mac. But I do want to start with the Celtics because, man, that one sucked. You lose 120 to 117 in overtime. Your second best player, Jalen Brown, is at the line. A chance to give you the lead late. And what happens? He misses both of them. He misses both free throws. And after the first one, well, I'll say this, and this isn't me second guessing or anything along those lines. I was nervous when he went to the line because Jalen has never been a great free throw shooter. So I was nervous when he went to the line. But once he missed the first one, I knew he wasn't hitting the second one. I mean, aren't you there too? Like you could tell his face. It told you the story like, oh shit, I got another one here. And he short armed it again. So it's just, it was so aggravating because the Celtics made this epic comeback in the fourth quarter, and then they decided to give it away in overtime when they had a five-point lead, and then your second-best player has a chance to bail you out, and he misses back-to-back free throws, and now this is starting to become a trend with Jalen Brown in terms of his free throw shooting. So October, Jalen, 80.6% from the free throw line. That would have been a career best, right? I mean, career high. You're thinking, okay. Then in November, follows that up 84.3%. And you're thinking to yourself, hey, Jalen Brown may be a good free throw shooter. Well, then in December, 76.5%. And this month, he's down to 72.9%. So you got to be able to hit your free throws late in games. It seems like so simplistic. But man, for an all-star level player like Jalen Brown to do that, that just sucked. That's a pressure thing. And that does sort of worry you when it comes to a big playoff series. Is Jalen going to hit his free throws late, right? I mean, I don't think... 
um, out of bounds to say that. That could be a concern when you get into the postseason because Jalen was pulling the string on those free throws. Okay, just in terms of Jalen in general in this game, I thought he played really poorly. He was 8 of 22 from the floor. He has 22 points, but on 22 shots, he's 1 of 8 from 3. He took a really bad 3 late in the game, in overtime, I should say, where barely any time off the shot clock, he just launches one. Like, why would you think that's a good shot when at the time you're one of seven from three-point territory? It just doesn't make any sense to me, like, why he takes so many threes when he has the ability to get downhill and he has the ability to just get to his pull-up game from two-point territory. And instead, he decides to take these threes, which to me, it feels like those are rushed. There's no reason for him to do that whatsoever. And the other issue with Jalen has been the turnovers are back. So he had two really bad ones tonight. He had the one where, and they were in back-to-back possessions for Jalen. He gets up in the air, and we saw this time and time again against the Warriors and the Miami Heat in the postseason last year, where he gets up in the air, he doesn't know where he's going, and he just throws the ball away because he has nobody to throw the pass to because he decided just to get in the air for no reason with no plan whatsoever. And then the very next possession, the one that was reviewed, he dribbles it off his foot. How many times did we see that last year where he dribbles the basketball off his foot? So the turnovers are an issue. The free throws have been an issue this month. And if you just look at the totality of his turnovers this month, 30 turnovers, 28 assists. So he has more turnovers than he has assists this month. And you say, yeah, Tatum's turnover prone too, right? 39 turnovers for Tatum this month, more than Jalen, but he has 67 assists. So Tatum, you can live with some of the turnovers, not all of them, obviously. You can live with some of them because he's creating for other people. With Jalen, he's really not creating for anybody but himself. So if you're going to be that type of player, you can't be turning the ball over at the rate Jalen Brown is right now. Now, one other thing to look at at Jalen is when Tatum's off the floor, when it's Jalen and Malcolm Brogdon, they have a 110.7 offensive rating due to the Celtics. Now that would rank around 28th in the NBA. So that's Spurs level bad. Now, when it's Jalen without smart with when it's Jalen without Tatum and he has smart. So Jalen and smart, no Tatum. That offensive rating is a 111.2, which is 25th, which would be around 25th in the NBA. So Jalen playing with both those guys, it has not worked out in terms of the offensive efficiency whatsoever. With Tatum, obviously, it works with everybody. Tatum generates really good offense. And I just look at this. The reason I think this is happening is I feel like Jalen gets into a position where he thinks he needs to do everything when Tatum's off the court, and he doesn't, right? Like, Jason Tatum can run the entire offense. Jason Tatum can make ridiculous passes. Jason Tatum, as we saw at the end of the game, can basically play point guard. Jalen can't, and I think what is happening is because Jalen is sort of second on the food chain, second on the pecking order, that he tries to just take over when he's playing with Brogdon and Smart, and it would behoove Jalen to let those guys handle the ball more, let those guys run the offense, let those guys set him up, because Jalen is not a play initiator. Jalen is a play finisher. And I do feel like they have to get back to or get to Jalen being more of a finisher than Jalen being a play creator, because quite frankly, that does not go well because his handle, he has issues with his handle at times. He has issues with his decision-making. I just wish that when he was on the floor without Tatum and he was with Brogdon or Smart, he let those guys do the bulk of the playmaking because what we've seen with Jalen is when he tries to be that guy, it doesn't go well, and we've seen this for a couple of years now. Now, this is not supposed to be me taking this big shot at Jalen Brown. I'm just saying these are some things that we should be a little bit concerned about going forward. Another thing to be concerned about is the third quarter issues continue to happen here in the month of January. So tonight, they're outscored by New York, 33-25. to They were outscored by Orlando on Monday, 33-25, to and Miami, 25-24 to on Tuesday. So if you look at their net rating, so if you take their offensive rating and their defensive rating, 
and subtract the difference. In the month of January, the Celtics are at minus 3.0. That's 19th in the NBA in the third quarter. December, they were at plus 10.7, which was fourth. November, plus 6.9, which was ninth. October, plus 5.4, which was 12th. So the Celtics went from being a really good team in the third quarter, especially in December and November, to a really bad third quarter team this month. And I don't know the reason for that. You really can't come up with a good answer. Now, maybe it's you've been dealing with a lot more injuries this month, so there's inconsistency there, but it shouldn't be happening in the third quarter coming out of halftime. I don't know why all these other teams are ready to play. And lately, we've seen the Celtics. They have to dig themselves out of these holes, and especially against the Magic the other night, it was too big of a hole to overcome. So yeah, you make these great, furious comebacks in the fourth quarter, but it's just too much. So whatever it is, I don't know if they need more orange slices, whatever, figure out the third quarter. All right. The other thing that's frustrating about that third quarter when you give up the 33 points is we see the Celtics are capable defensively. Look at what they did in the fourth quarter. It's 106-94. Defense gets completely dialed up, right? They double Randall and they get a steal. It leads to a Brogdon bucket. Shot clock violation where Al stripped Brunson. They got another shot clock violation on a late double on Randall where he just throws the ball away. But where is that defensive effort? Where is that defensive intensity in the third quarter. It's going back to this whole third quarter thing. I don't know why they're not ready to go in the third quarter. The fourth quarter, they show that ability to dial up the defense, which is a good thing, but you just like to see that happen in a quarter like tonight in the third quarter where their offense wasn't good whatsoever, that they at least dial it up on the defensive end and generate some easy points that way in transition, et cetera, and off turnovers. And what we've seen is that just hasn't happened for the Celtics team. All right. A good thing for the Celtics is With the struggling offense, we have seen the offensive rebounding actually help this team. So tonight they have 17. And if you want to compare that to the league, the Grizzlies lead the league at 13.3. And really, a lot of this has to do with Rob Williams' return. Since his debut this season, they're at 11.6, which is seventh in the NBA. Without Rob, they were at 8.3, which was 27th in the NBA. So with the shooting being bad for the Celtics, with the offense being stuck in the mud at times, This is a weapon that they didn't have before Rob Williams got back. And quite frankly, it kept them in the game for a large portion of this thing. All right, I did want to get to Tatum because I didn't like the shot at the end of the fourth quarter. Tatum completely took over that fourth quarter. I didn't care for the shot, right? And this is something that the Celtics, for whatever reason, they go way too late at the end of these games. You don't have to wait till it gets down to seven, six seconds to make your move. In fact, I would contend that you should go earlier than that, like 10 seconds, but Tatum, for whatever reason, it's not a Tatum thing, it's a team thing. They wait way too late to go. So what Tatum ends up doing is he gets to the right elbow and he takes a shot that he's clearly capable of hitting, but why settle for that, right? Tatum has the ability to get downhill, and even if he's doubled, you can make the right play and kick it out to an open shooter. So I'd much rather him put pressure on the defense than a fadeaway jumper. I know Tatum's capable of hitting that shot, But he's also capable of getting to the rim, getting to the free throw line, or kicking it out to an open shooter. I just feel like you let the defense off the hook where really you only engage one player, and that's the guy covering Jason Tatum. So I really did hate that shot at the end of the game. All in all, though, Tatum continues to prove that he has a legitimate argument for the MVP the way he's playing. Now, this week doesn't help him because of a team perspective, but he scores seven of the Celtics' first 10 points tonight, and you saw everything, right? Early on, he backs down a smaller Grimes for a bucket. Then he hits a pull-up three. Then a catch-and-shoot three off a pass from Jalen. Then he hits a floater. Then another floater off a spin on Randall. And this is something that he talked about. Him and Drew Hanlon were working on his floater game this offseason. We saw that tonight. First quarter, 12 points, 5 of 5 shooting. Then he gets to the glass, right? Back-to-back offensive rebounds for putbacks. Gets to the free throw line nine times in this game. He realizes at one point he gets Grimes on him again and he realizes there's no help. So he spins to his left and gets an easy dunk. And then in the fourth quarter, he was just tremendous down the stretch where 
He gets a screen from Rob, gets to his left hand, sort of like a point guard scoop layup, which is nice to see from a guy his size. Then he gets another screen, gets to the hoop easily. He gets that and one on Randall, just a really strong finish. And then he gets to his right hand on the next possession and gets to the basket. So all in all, I thought Tatum played well. In overtime, he found Derek White for an open three. And then the very next play, he backs down R.J. Barrett, who's not a small guy, but Tatum obviously has him from a size perspective. Scores on him, makes it 115-110. He did miss a couple of buckets late. But all in all, I was impressed with Jason Tatum's performance. That's why I was so frustrated with Jalen Brown's performance. Jalen's got to show up. You got to show up for your best player. Jalen's supposed to be the second best player on this team, which he is. He's going to be an all-star. Jalen Brown's going to be better, flat out. If you're looking at this game and you're saying, hey, what was wrong with this game? I would say Jalen Brown was not good. Jalen Brown has had his issues over the past month or so where his shooting has not been the same. He's taking too many threes. He's turning the ball over. And tonight, of course, he misses the free throws. He's got to be better. All right, another issue for the Celtics, and it wasn't so much tonight, although we did see a couple of them. The turnovers, and I'm kind of reviewing the week because we had the emergency podcast on Tuesday with Bill O'Brien, so we haven't been able to talk a lot of C's. But if you look at the Celtics this month in January, and we saw this happen against Miami the other night, 16 or more turnovers, the Celtics are one and three. Less than 16 turnovers in January, they're eight and two. And the reason I bring this up is it scares me that the turnovers are coming back because if you look at the playoffs last year, 16 or more turnovers, they were one and eight. Less than 16 turnovers, they were 13 and two. So it's just something to sort of keep your eye on. Look at the 16 turnovers and see what the Celtics do in those games because a lot of them are sloppy ones they don't need, right? Like the two we mentioned from Jalen tonight, when you're going too early when a screen's coming, these are things that are easily avoidable and the Celtics have a tendency to let these turnovers creep up. All right, the other thing is the three-point shooting for the Celtics continues to be a struggle this month. 16 for 46 tonight, that's 34.8%. And if you look at the Celtics on the season, October, they were at 39.9% from three, third in the NBA. So their offensive rating was 116.9, which was fifth in the NBA. No surprise there, right? It was really good. Well, in November, 41.1% from three, first in terms of three-point shooting. Their offensive rating was also first, 123.3. Well, then you go to December. They shot 32.7% from three, 26 in the NBA. Their offensive rating was 110.9, 27th. Weren't hitting threes, their offense sucked, right? January. 35.7%, 20th in the NBA in terms of their three-point shooting, 115.0 offensive rating, which is 19th in the NBA. So not good, right? And we saw it again, struggling in terms of the three-point shooting. But the thing that I will not accept is the Celtics offense shouldn't be so dependent on what the result of their three-point shooting is. There's got to be better ways and there's got to be more efficient ways to have a good offense, even when you're not shooting the ball great from three-point territory. And the thing that I point to is the free throws. The Celtics on the season are 24th in the NBA in free throws per game at 22.4. Tonight, they took 23 in an overtime game. So the good thing is Tatum is way up in terms of his free throws this year. He's at 8.7, which is sixth in the league. Jalen Brown's at 5.3, which is 31st. And maybe you want Jalen to take less after what we saw at the end of the game tonight. But nonetheless, after those two guys, Brogdon is third on the team in free throws per game at 2.8. That ranks 105th in the NBA. So... After your top two guys, nobody else is getting to the free throw line whatsoever. And I just feel like if these three-point numbers continue to go down for the Celtics, if they continue to struggle in terms of the three-point shooting, you got to find a better way to play offense. And some of that would be get to the basket and get to the free throw line. And the Celtics really have not been doing that because if you're going to play this way all season long and into the playoffs where you're just so three-point dependent, look, I'm a math guy. I'm, I'm into the threes. I get it. They're worth more than twos. Everybody knows that. But at some point, you just got to get downhill. You've got to get muddy and you've got to get to the basket because 
we're going to go through the playoffs and we're going to watch this team. It's going to be like, oh, the Celtics aren't hitting threes. They're going to lose. They have to find an easier way to generate offense when they're not hitting their threes. They can't just always have a shitty offensive rating when their threes aren't falling. You've got to find other ways to score. Another disappointment lately has been Grant Williams. So he plays 22 minutes tonight, six points. He's a minus 18 in the game. And he fell asleep on defense a couple of times. He's a great defender, but off the ball, he was just falling asleep at one point. Like, remember that Randall dunk where he dunked on Tatum with his left hand? Grant Williams is just out in the corner. You're supposed to help there. You're on a non-shooter. Get out and help, right? So I don't know what Grant was doing there. But if you look at it now, he's two of eight from the floor tonight. He's two of six from three. And in the month of January, Grant Williams shooting has really gone to shit. He's 40 of 49 from the field, 40.4%. Prior to January, he's at 51.7%, so that's a massive dip-off. And then the three-point shooting, he was 17 of 49, 34.7%. And pre-January, he was at 44.3%. So what has happened to Grant Williams this month? I feel like there's just been games where he's been non-existent whatsoever. It's not like when we see Hauser struggle, it's just like, oh, this guy's not hitting threes. With Grant, it's like he's been a non-factor. Yes, he had that great 25-point game against the Toronto Raptors. But if you look at it, he's had six games this month with six points or fewer. And I don't know if it's part of he's moving around a lot in terms of his role because guys are in and out of the lineup. I just feel like Grant Williams, the impact that he had early on this season was great for the Celtics team. And I feel like lately he's been a net negative for them. He has not played well outside of that Raptors game. And tonight, I don't know what he's doing. He's having these conversations with the refs after the third quarter. He's bitching about the foul calls. It just feels like he's been taken out of his game lately. And they need to get that guy back. All right. One other thing I wanted to get into in terms of just the NBA in general is this whole idea of the rivalry week. So you got the Heat on Tuesday, which that makes a lot of sense, right? You had some epic series against them going back to last year, the conference finals, the Jimmy Butler shot at the end. And then you go back to the bubble, the epic series you had there. And then you had some series against LeBron and Dwayne Wade, where LeBron had that furious comeback where the Celtics are up three games to two. So you get the Heat rivalry. But why the Knicks? I don't really get this. They had one recent series in 2013 with an old Paul Pierce and old Kevin Garnett and Carmelo Anthony on the other side. In the 1980s, the Celtics beat the Knicks in 84 in seven games. They beat them in 88 as well. And the 90s, the Celtics weren't good when the Knicks were good with Patrick Ewing and company. So it definitely wasn't a rivalry in the 90s. I guess it's just the Boston-New York thing, but I don't really see this as a big-time rival, right? I mean, I believe the C's this week, if you're talking about rivalry week in the NBA, they should have played the Bucs. You have recent history, right? The C's win that crazy seven-game series last year. In 18, the C's won in seven. And you go to 19, remember the bad Kyrie year, the Bucks win, which remember that was when like Kyrie was trying to cover Giannis for some inexplicable reason. So what? Three out of the past five playoffs, the Celtics and the Bucks have played. And then you go back, 87, you had a seven-game series against the Bucks, and the C's swept them in 86. They also won in 84, 4-1. The Bucs swept the C's in 83, Bird missed game two. The C's won in 74, Havlicek averaged 26.4, and Kareem 32.6 on the other end. Big O was on that team as, as well, so that was a better ivory. It has recent history, and it has better past history, so I don't understand why the Knicks would be sort of the rivalry here with the Celtics. It would make a lot more sense that it would be a team like the Milwaukee Bucks. If they played the Heat, the Bucks, and the Lakers, that would have been perfect for this whole idea of rivalry week. And you get the Lakers, of course, on Saturday night, which we all know the history there. But I have no idea why the Knicks are in this. I got to imagine it's just a Boston, New York thing, but it makes no sense. These teams are not rivals. All right, I did want to mention the Heat game real quick. So no Jalen, no Al, no Smart, no Brogdon. They didn't have Jimmy Butler. But 
Why is Joe Mazzulla not taking a timeout at the end of the game there? You have their defense is set up. The Miami defense is set up. I don't know why Joe Mazzulla didn't take a timeout there. It's not like you're going up against a defense that is not ready for you. They're set up in their zone and they didn't take a timeout. Now, Tatum's going to be better at the end of the game, but I don't know why you're not taking a timeout there because what we saw tonight when Joe Mazzulla actually used his timeout late, he designed an incredible play, right? Basically, what he did is he had Tatum be on the other side of half court. He lifted up Al Horford and he lifted up Robert Williams and he had Jalen run to the corner and Jalen runs to the corner. When Jalen runs to that corner, Al runs to the other free throw line. So there's literally nobody in the lane. So all Jalen has to do is beat his player and he gets to the basket for in easy dunk and the Celtics take a lead at that particular point in time. So that's what's sort of frustrating going back to that game the other night is they didn't call a timeout late. So Missoula has got to figure out his timeout situation, right? I mean, just figure this out. And the other thing I would say about the heat is I really don't want to see this team in a series in the playoffs, right? And I know they're not as talented as they were last year and their team is a little bit older, but Eric Spolster is just an unbelievable coach. He busted out that zone the other night. And Bam was tremendous. He goes for 30 and 15. The Celtics could not figure out that zone. I mean, think about this from a Celtics perspective. The Heat went on a 15-0 run when they busted out that zone. Seas were up 87 to 77 with 847 left. And then they were down 92-87 with 316 left. So then you look at Bam. He took over late, got to the line eight times. And I feel like Bam is a real matchup problem for the Celtics, right? So he takes 7.8 floater attempts per game the most in the NBA, and he hits 48.4 of them, and in that 48.4% of them, and in that game the other night, he had six from floater range. So Giannis, you think about how the Celtics do match up relatively well with Giannis with all the big bodies they can throw at him, and look, Giannis is a better player than Bam, but Bam may actually be a tougher matchup for the Seas. Giannis is only at 18.9% from floater range, so he has to get all the way to the rim. Bam has this unbelievable floater game where he's just able to hit everything in that area, and he really gives the Celtics trouble. And I just don't want to see Spolstra going up against a young Joe Mazzulla in a playoff series. I don't want any part of that whatsoever. Now, ultimately, I would pick the Celtics to win that series, but it really would worry me. I do not want to see Eric Spolstra. I do not want to see Bam. I've seen Bam against the Celtics too many times. I don't want to see that matchup. The other thing about this week was the Magic, who the Celtics lose to. The Magic just own the Celtics for whatever reason. <laughs> They're one and three against <laughs> the Magic this year. Think about that. One and three against the Orlando Magic, right? But we talk about the East going forward. This is a team I think you should be worried about. They feel like they're a piece away. Bancaro as a rookie is a beast. He's at 7.8 free throw attempts per game. That's 14th in the NBA. That guy's 250 pounds as a rookie. Tatum did not get over seven attempts until this season. This isn't supposed to be a Tatum-Bancaro comparison because Tatum's got a lot of different tools right now. But just Bancaro's ability to get downhill is ridiculous to me, right? And then you look at Franz Wagner, the other guy they have there in terms of their young players. He's not your number one, but he can be a huge player on a good team. And he doesn't have to be number one because you have Bancaro. You look at him. He's at 20 points per game, 49.3% from the field. He was giving you trouble the other night. He's a player. And I've always liked Isaac as a player. And we saw him make a season debut against the Celtics. He plays really well, 6'10". There was talk about him being a defensive player of the year candidate a couple years ago when he was like healthy and whatnot. He was at 2.3 blocks per game in his last season prior to the injuries. Suggs is still young. Wendell Carter for Vucevic and first-round picks. That was a steal for the Magic. They have two f more first-round picks. So right now they have 5th and 10th from Chicago this year. Like, they could easily, if they get lucky with the ping-pong balls and the Magic tend to, they could get one Bignana, they could get Scoot Henderson, 
Or like if they don't get one of those top two guys and they don't want another young guy, they could use some of these picks and some of these resources to go out there and get another player. So if you're looking at the future of the Eastern Conference, it feels like to me the Magic are that team. I know the Cavaliers are fairly young as well, but the Magic, that's a really scary team in the future. All right, so that's sort of the week for the Seas, the week from hell where they lose three games. I'm not going to overreact. Like, I still feel really good about this team, but I'd like to see more from Jalen. I'd like to see Grant Williams actually give this team something this month and just cut down on the turnovers. All right, a lot more to get into. Coming up next, we'll chat with Eric Edholm from the NFL Network and NFL Media. This episode is brought to you by Viore. If you're sick and tired of your old traditional workout gear, then I have two words that will change everything. Viore clothing. This line of active wear is truly unbelievable. And here's why. Look, you've seen me. You've seen the shorts I do on YouTube. I walk around. I do stuff. I listen to podcasts when I walk. I make calls when I walk. I like to wear comfortable workout equipment, you know? Like nothing nuts. Just like a really nice pullover, comfortable pants to walk around. Viore is designed to work out in whatever you're doing, but it doesn't look or feel like you're working out at all. It's so freaking soft and comfortable. You'll never want to take it off. And here's the best part. You don't have to take it off. Wear Viore clothing to train, travel, or lounge around the house. I do a lot of lounge around the house. Go get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet. Our listeners get 20% off their first purchase at Viore.com slash ringer. V-U-O-R-I.com slash ringer. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Joining us now from NFL Media, NFL.com, it is Eric Edholm. Eric, thanks so much for taking some time, man. How are you? I'm doing well. Pleasure's mine. It's, uh, it's draft season. It's my season. You know, I'm excited. So this is a good time of year. Yeah, and it's going to be a huge draft for the Patriots based on some of the needs we have. We'll get into that in a second. But so today, this huge piece comes out in the Boston Herald about just some of the dysfunction of the Patriots offense that we could all see from afar, but it was kind of illuminating, right? So one anonymous quote, I love coach, but he fucked us talking about Bill Belichick. <laughs> and then <laughs> that's he, a money quote. Yeah, it's a really good quote. They talked about too. And, and by the way, it was Karen Gregan and uh, Andrew Callahan. Yep. They talked about how they had to toss out play action because it wasn't matching their scheme. Like, so the play action wasn't working whatsoever, which we saw. Mac Jones was third to last in the NFL in play action use. Yeah. One source said the training camp practice with Josh, they were in, would install 25 pages worth of fresh run plays under Patricia and Judge. That was roughly cut in half. Wow. Then you Then you had a quote. A lot of guys would ask, well, what's going on if the defense does this? And you would say, well... They really hadn't accounted for that. They'd say, well, we'll get to that when we get to that. That type of attitude got us into trouble. What was wrong with the old offense? You tell me. I don't know. <laughs> so this is how the players felt about this whole situation. And we all thought before the season, Eric, and I'm sure you did too, like this looked like a really bad idea. Matt, Patricia, Joe Judge competing for the offensive coordinator position. What we would find out is it was really bad. But <laughs> I mean, are you surprised that Bill Belichick would do something that seemed at the time this irresponsible? I think yeah, I think you're right. I think I had the same concerns that most everybody else did, which is you're trying to wedge a you know a, a round peg into a square hole, or maybe two round pegs in a hole. And you know, it was this like tryout thing with with Judge and Patricia. It felt very forced. I mean, Bill, you know, there if 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 you're good to Bill, Bill will be loyal to you, right? And he's brought back McDaniel's, and he's brought back other coaches before and and obviously Patricia and Judge are, are are two of the latest and 
you know, I almost wonder if it wasn't kind of a car wash type of deal. Like I'll, I'll, I'll watch over those guys that, you know, his, <laughs> what was his quote at one point? If, if anything goes wrong, you guys can, can come after me. Well, yeah, you know, right. Or whatever I'm paraphrasing, but the point is, okay. Then, then he's ripe for criticism because like you said, if you take an unorthodox idea and it works, wow. Then that just adds another chapter to the genius file. But uh, when it predictably doesn't, then you're left to clean up a mess. And in some cases, you know, you may have set yourself back more than a season and, and the whole development of Mac feels like it's been completely undone. Yeah. That's the biggest thing is Mac Jones is feels like this is sort of like a wasted season for him, but also too, like you mentioned Joe judge and it does feel like there's this <clears throat> blind loyalty for this guy in the piece. They talked about him and Mac would get in shouting matches and they would get <laughs> into outbursts all the time, going back and forth in practice. And it was even mentioned in this Herald piece that Belichick would be yelling at Joe Judge during these practices, like getting into it with Joe Judge. So I just wonder, like, why is he so loyal? This is the same guy that we heard last year, a complete lie to the media when he was doing his press conference. He essentially said that he had players on other teams that signed for more money asking to come back, which we all knew there was no truth to that whatsoever. Yeah. This is the same guy that ran, what, a quarterback sneak on third and nine. I just don't understand. <laughs> what, and like, it's not like he has a background as like a good offensive mind, a good defensive mind. He was the special teams coach. I I felt like, okay, if you're bringing him back as the special teams guy, fine. Like, okay, they were good and they were bad with Cam McCord. That makes sense. They were good under Joe Judge, I'm saying. But I just don't understand why you would give him any sort of important position in the organization. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a tough one for me to answer. Don't have, you know, the, the... You know, the the magic solution for that one. I obviously the way Judge's exit was from New York, it was clear he, you know, he was gonna have to kind of reboot and start things over again. Obviously, Bill provides him the opportunity. And like you said, you expected it to be remember, he's I think he spent a year as the receivers coach, I believe. Yep. And you know, so what what wasn't shocking if it wasn't gonna be that role specifically, special teams coordinator. But it was it was fascinating that they went all the way to the top and try to all right let's figure it out as we go. It, it it just didn't it didn't. I don't know if they were blindsided by Josh leaving or that possibility, or if they just felt like you know the the guy who almost never goes outside the organization for for coordinator hires felt like not doing that again. So yeah, I mean, as far as judge specifically, it's it's hard to to say and sometimes hard to defend. Yeah, and getting back to Mac Jones because we mentioned him earlier. So like after last year or I should say two seasons ago now, he had a good rookie season. I felt like mm. most people felt like, "Hey, this is the Patriots quarterback for the next decade or so." Like Bill has found his guy. Even if we knew there was probably some limitations in terms of the ceiling like he doesn't have the athletic ability of Josh Allen or the arm of Justin Herbert, but you felt like, okay, this guy could be a pretty good NFL quarterback for the foreseeable future. Are you still there with Mac, or does this year, based on everything that happened, obviously a lot to do with the play calling the offensive coordinator, are you concerned about Mac going forward? Yeah, I mean, I think the good thing about Mac is that he seems like a, well, I mean, maybe this year challenged that a little bit, but, you know, pretty thick skinned kid in some ways. And then I obviously know that there was some, some back talking that, that went on and some, you know, phone calls and things like that, 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 that he might have wanted back and maybe just the way he handled things. But um, the good news is that he does get a fresh start with somebody in Bill O'Brien, who's obviously worked with him before and knows his strengths and weaknesses. So, you know, think about Trevor Lawrence last year with Urban Meyer. We sat there and said, boy, yeah. did they just break this kid? You know, well, no, he played well this year. Doug Peterson's one of the best. I think, you know, Bill is 
maybe not at that level, but not far off. And he's been a head coach and worked in college. So there's a lot of things to like about it. You know, I, I, there've been plenty of examples of guys who, who looked like they, they took a step back and, and figured things out eventually. So I'm not ready to just say that, that, you know, he can't make it work here. I mean, the good news is that they, I think they at least sort of put the the Bailey Zappi thing to the side for now. I don't think that's going to be a recurring theme, which it could have been. I mean, the way that you know the, that unfolded, I thought was very bizarre, and and could have opened the door for for a lot more speculation about his future. Yeah, that Monday night game is still one of the most bizarre things you've seen. Right? Like, yeah. What was the? Why would you want to play Mac and then pull him from the game? If that's the case, like Zappi had played well, just let Zappi play the whole game, then go back to Mac. It just it right. felt like what Belichick did was created a quarterback controversy that essentially wasn't necessary. But so you mentioned Bill O'Brien, and I think that's part of the reason that people are optimistic about Mac bouncing back in year three. And I feel like here locally, Eric, it's like it's being celebrated like a coach being fired. And I guess Patricia's still on the staff. It's being celebrated like Bobby Valentine, just that Patricia's <laughs> out, you know, you bring in Bill O'Brien, you just get yep. rid of that guy that was like so bad. So with Bill O'Brien coming in, do you think this is sort of like the savior that maybe people here locally think he is? You know, things weren't perfect with, from my recollection anyway. I mean, I know I don't believe he actually got the offensive coordinator title until right before, you know, the year before he left for the, for Penn state, yeah. correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, in essence was, was calling plays prior to that. And, you know, I mean, I can remember I was at the, you know, I was up there in 2009 when they were having trouble generating big plays until the game I showed up the snow game against Tennessee when they you know, but still, I mean, you know, it's it's not going to be instant coffee. I think you have to be be, be patient in terms of installing things and you know, kind of unlearning what they learned or or didn't learn last year, and, and <laughs> you know, sticking it through Google <laughs> Translate a few times. And um, but yeah, I mean, do they have the offensive tackles to make the system work? I don't know that answer yet. I don't think so. Right? Um, what what other weapons can they add to the system? What what existing pieces? Hunter Henry, John New Smith, Devontae Parker, you name it, whoever, can they squeeze more out of, right? I think that's that's going to be part of it is like just using the parts they have. Obviously, they'll add to, to what they have. But yeah, I mean, I think just the, the from a comfort level standpoint, you know, where there isn't this daily tension and this, this sense that the guy who's calling plays doesn't know what he's doing. You know, Bill comes in with some credentials, right? I mean, he's he's not perfect, but. You know, I thought he was a better head coach than some people gave him, you know, credit for being it was the GM part that he wasn't very good at. So I don't know. I, I, I'm cautiously optimistic, I guess. Yeah. You look at the Belichick tree. He's probably the best one, right? He was 52 and 48. So, I mean, he, right. he, had, he had some success in Houston, won the division a bunch of times. And you're right. Yep. I mean, like the Hopkins thing, you can't really defend that trade, especially. Right. Like I mean, trade him for a running back in a second round pick. It doesn't really. <laughs> Makes sense. But so you have a, you have something up right now at NFL.com about the draft order and the needs. And you just mentioned the tackles there. You have offensive tackle number one for the Patriots and you have receiver and defensive back. So just in terms of the draft this year, it looks like Broderick Jones from Georgia could be sort of in that area in terms of if you're looking for a tackle. But based on how bad it was with Isaiah Wynn and with Trent Brown, do you think the Patriots have to do both, like go after one in the draft and one via free agency? That's a good way to look at it. I think, I mean, obviously if you, if you double down on the draft, now Seattle did that and got pretty good results out of it this year. They took a tackle at, at nine and a tackle at 40 and 
threw them both in there and, you know, lived with the mistakes and, and for the most part got pretty good play out of them. But I think you're right. I, marrying a, a, a rookie with a veteran makes a lot of sense. And it's interesting, too. I mean, you could argue that it's maybe more imperative to put the veteran at left tackle next to Cole Strange, right, uh, than it might be than to put the rookie at right tackle. I mean, that's one way of looking at it. I'm sure they have a different view of it. But um, I think it's a it's a decent year for tackles. I don't know that one of the top three is guaranteed to be there at 14, and it depends who you're talking about, right? I mean, you mentioned Broderick Jones, young guy teaming with upside, not super long, but, um, you know, a good athletic player. I mean, he he moved extremely well in the two playoff games that I watched just recently again, um, you know, got out and led the run game, has good sort of redirect ability and things like that. Uh, Paris Johnson Jr. from Ohio State is a guy I bet they'll like to more of a – uh, longer Nate Solder type of guy, I guess, in terms of just body type. Um, and I think a really good solid player with, uh, you know, some growth and upside left. Um, his teammate, Dewan Jones, I, I like more than other people do. Kind of the, the massive uh, uh, Trent Brown type. I mean, he's that physical specimen who's six, eight, nine some of the longest arms in NFL history. I think an 89 inch wingspan. I've never heard of anything that high, um, but he moves pretty well for a 365, 70 pound guy. So, you know, I could see him being a possibility as, as a right tackle. Um, and then the question would be, do they feel like Northwestern's Peter Skaronsky and another kid that I like a lot, Cody Mock from uh, North Dakota state. Some teams have them inside. Some have them are willing to let them try tackle out you know where do the patriots view those guys what position how much upside they're both a little short-armed you know so that could come into play the the question would be is there a player that they feel good about at 14 and i'd say right now i'm not sure what the answer is Mm -hmm. interesting well at least it feels like there's a lot of them so they can get one later on if they don't get one in the first round so speaking of guys that they already have, or I should say guys they already have, is Tyquan Thornton. So last year, he's taken in the second round, and Patriots fans are like, wait, George Pickens went two picks after him, and like, Steelers are really good at drafting receivers, and everyone's like, oh, what the heck? And then, you know, fastest <laughs> fastest receiver at the combine, but then he gets, and he was having a pretty good, like, preseason. Then he gets injured, and he misses a bunch of time. He ends up with, like, less than 250 receiving yards. Had this one game against the Browns where he ran one in for a touchdown, caught a touchdown pass, and everyone was like, whoa, maybe we have something here. So from you evaluating him last year and what you saw from this year, what do you think the ceiling is? Is he a two? Could he be like a 1.5? Is he a three? Like, where do you have him? Yeah, I think I think that Browns game, I think I picked him up in my fantasy team the next week. I was slightly disappointed (laughs) thereafter. I could be wrong. Um, yeah, he was an interesting for one for me to a uh, guy for me to study coming out. Um, you know, I knew obviously he was fast. He was he for a couple of years. We we had seen uh, you know the the speed at play and and you know they Baylor's cranked out some some fast big fast wide receivers over the years. Now obviously he's a little bit thinner, you know, one hundred eighty pound guy or whatever in a, in a six two six three frame. Um, I did worry that it was he was a little wiry. Uh, I did worry that his route tree was a little bit limited. Um, there were times when he was a body catcher and didn't look totally natural catching the football. I, I can't claim to say I watched every rep he ran this year, uh, but I what I saw, I thought, hey, he catches it a little better than I remembered. You know, I mean, he seemed a little more natural doing it. Um, 
And I feel like New England wide receivers are becoming the new New England running back. Like you never, <laughs> never quite know which one's going to step up each week. So there's a, a little bit of that. And boy, I correct me if I'm wrong. I can't remember the last rookie Patriots receiver to do anything, right? I mean, am I forgetting somebody? Is there? You probably have to go back to like Malcolm Mitchell in the 16 yeah. Super Bowl season, like against. Good call. Like it's been it's been that long, like right. since Malcolm Mitchell. And unfortunately for him, he just had all those knee issues. Yeah, that Super Bowl was was his crowning achievement. That was a, a fantastic performance. But yeah, you hope obviously he can have a, a you know a, a step up. But but if you start from where he was, where he was getting some playing time in certain games, felt like he was more part of the game plan. You know, I would say he's probably more of a two than a one. Um, but ideally, he's a three. I know that doesn't sound very exciting, but. If you look, obviously, the the makeup of most teams, Chiefs are a little different after the Hill trade, but, you know, they, they really want those those three weapons that, uh, you know, they're maybe not on even footing, but they're closer than the the old generation one, two, and three were maybe. So in, in that definition, maybe he's a two, two and a half or something like that, but he's he should be your deep threat and he should be a little bit of a gadget guy and, you know, somebody who can... Uh, take the top off of defense and, and give you a little bit of burst of speed from, uh, you know, end rounds and, and screens and whatnot. Yeah, I hope they try to use his speed more next season because they didn't really have a guy like that that had yeah. super speed and he had it and they didn't use him all the time. So speaking of the receiver situation, so Jacoby Myers, it looks like he's going to get a decent deal on the open market considering, I mean, I'm not saying it's going to be Christian Kirk level, but it looks like he's going to get a deal because there's not a lot of receivers out there. Which yep. brings me to sort of like the trade market. Do you think that'll be busy? Because, I mean, we've already heard about DeAndre Hopkins. Maybe the Patriots are out because of the Bill O'Brien connection. But, like, just looking across the league at teams like Mike, the Mike Evans situation, maybe T. Higgins, because they're going to have to pay a lot of guys, Keenan yeah. Allen. Do you see that becoming something this offseason where we see some of these big receivers moved? Yeah, you bring up some good names there. You know, the thing I was told with Hopkins, because I, I kind of assumed that, like, wow, that, you know, Hopkins and O'Brien must just have hated each other. I was told that wasn't the case. That mm. I guess it was more of that they just had no relationship, you know, that they just, they weren't friends. They were, you know, essentially just co workers and did, talked as little as they possibly. Now, DeAndre's a quiet guy, right? I mean, he's not a, he's not a big talker. And I think he's, he's a little bit more reserved and, that sort of thing. So I don't know. I mean, I it, obviously the guy, you know, O'Brien traded the guy away. Maybe he has some bitter feelings about it. I'm not sure, but somebody I talked to who who probably would would have a pretty good uh, finger on the pulse said, I don't think they despised each other. I just think they, you know, maybe butted heads a little bit, but they go back and look at Hopkins' numbers under O'Brien. They were insane. Yeah. I mean, he fed him like, you know. So I do think the trade option has to be in play, whether it's Hopkins, whether it's one of those other guys you mentioned. We know Belichick has affection for Hopkins. I mean, he's he's such a such a smart route runner and, and such good you know, sideline body control and hands usually, um, but uh, with the occasional drop. But still, I I would say he's he's a pretty good option. Now, he's the same age as Randy Moss was when he arrived in New England, so it's not like he's over the hill. He's thirty. I think 30 or 31 years old. So, you know, from that standpoint, it could work. The problem is the money and the Cardinals take a hit financially when they trade them. And, you know, I mean, how much are they going to ask for? Is it a day two pick? I don't know. So, you know, it could, it could work. Um, I don't know about the availability of Mike Evans. I haven't talked to anybody in Tampa about that. I don't know if that's a thing or not. It might be. I, I, 
Uh, certainly if Brady goes, that changes the whole picture there. Uh, it would be tough to trade a guy who's who's been kind of a pillar for the franchise and, and still in his prime theoretically. But if they felt like they had to do it, especially if there's cap issues and whatnot, could see it possibly happening, especially if it's a rebuild. So, yeah, those are those are possibilities. Higgins, there would be a lot of suitors if he was he was on the open market. I realize they probably can't pay everybody. They love to keep Jesse Bates. Um, and who was the other one you mentioned? I forgot the Keenan Allen. Oh, Keenan Allen. Yeah, you know, someone I, I do worry a little bit about his age and separation ability. Like like Hopkins, he's so good at, at running routes and, and doesn't need a ton of separation, but I worry if if his lack of speed is going to catch up to him. And that that may be something that is good in the short term for New England because he can still catch balls. But remember, he took a while to come back from that injury this year. A little longer than yeah. I think some people there felt like he should. All right, so the tight end position, you alluded to it earlier, but so $17.8 million against the cap for Janu next year. Hunter Henry's wow. 15.5. Yeah, they restructured this thing. For some reason, <laughs> they restructured it. it. Unbelievable. But anyway, so you got to combine 68 receptions last year from these two. So Hunter Henry, at least two years ago, like he was very effective for them in the red zone, had the nine touchdowns, but two last year, which was a career low. Mm-hmm. At this point, it feels like Janu Smith is a lost cause, but it doesn't feel like they can do much like, outside of what they have in the organization, considering how much money they have allocated to tight ends. Do you think that Bill O'Brien and Mac Jones can get more out of Henry Henry at least next year compared to what they did a season ago? Can he be somewhat of a productive player for them? Yeah, and it's too bad about Johnu too. I mean, I I remember seeing him at times in Tennessee and thinking, wow, you know, if somebody put him in a feature role, like I kind of wonder what this guy could do. But for whatever reason, it just hasn't worked so far. It didn't work great last year. And certainly this, this season, it was even worse. I feel like, unless I'm wrong, but um, I'm like, I can't remember five catches he made this year. And I, you know, I watched most (laughs) of their games. So, uh, but yeah, Henry, I I think a lot of that was any, and I even felt like he was under targeted even with the, the nine touchdown season, he would get his four or five a game and, you know, I get it. He plays a you know a versatile role for him and everything, and you know you got to respect him. That opens up other things. But yeah, I mean, you would think the the amount of money they have put in there, the fact that these guys were were you know are still technically in the primes of their career, you you would think there would be something there that they could work with. But um, you'll see if if O'Brien could do that. I mean, he used Cameron Latu very well this year. Had a lot of touchdowns at Alabama. You know, I, what Bill's actually done really well over the years is adjust to his personnel. I mean, if he had, you know, a lot of 12 personnel when they had, uh, you know, Hernandez and, and Gronk, and that was like the bread and butter of that offense, um, you know, then there are times in, in Houston where, you know, it was, it was more about Hopkins and the wide receivers in the run game and Arian Foster catching the ball. And so, you know, I mean, he's he's good at taking what he has and figuring out what what can I make out of this? What what's what's the best system to run within you know with the personnel we have? So, you know, I I twelve teams are hard to 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 cover. You know, you have to decide: do we go big and go base? Team that runs the ball like the Patriots makes sense, but can we throw? You know, that leaves the outside open and guys like Thornton and theoretically, if if Myers were to stay, you know, so that's that's that would be a a personnel package I could see them taking advantage of. Well, it's refreshing that you say that, that he adjusts to his personnel, because that's something we certainly did not see at all last season. So that's going to be nice to see from from Bill O'Brien. 
Uh, yeah. In the division, so the Jets, Robert Sala came out today and he said that they're looking to add a veteran quarterback. Of course, they hired Nathaniel Hackett, so everybody's putting the pieces together, Rodgers and Hackett. I've yeah. always thought like the Jets are appealing, even if it was like Brady, considering they have a really good defense. Garrett Wilson looks like, you know, a legitimate going to be a number one receiver in the league. The roster is pretty stacked, but do we have to worry about Rodgers coming to oh, the man. AFC East? I hadn't even considered the Brady thing. <laughs> I didn't even think about how great would that be, right? I mean, I, we know he hates the Jets. He's said it before, but uh, yeah, I mean, Derek Carr has been mentioned. Rodgers certainly would be in play, especially with Hackett on board. And, you know, the thing is, Hackett had such a brutal season this year from the opening game, you know, the 64-yard field goal or whatever oh, yeah. it was, <laughs> the play, you know, the time management and everything else. And, and it's too bad because it, you know, people were fascinated by him. They, they, you know, they, a lot of people sort of cast out on Mike McDaniel for his quirky personality, but they also talked up Nathaniel. Other people did talked up Hackett for, for him being a little bit different personality wise. Well, one had some success. The other didn't is out of a job. I think he's a good coach. I mean, just from what I know of him and you know, it'll be interesting to see what, what direction they go. Does Hackett say, I don't know, because this is tough because he loves Aaron. He just came from a situation where a team, the Denver Broncos, basically said to themselves, look, we, we've got a good young team. We've got the receivers. You know, we've got Cortland Sutton. We've got Jerry Judy. We've got this nucleus. You know what we need? We need a quarterback. Let's go out and get Russell Wilson. Boom. Instant uh, contender formula there. Well, you know, that didn't really work out. I mean, doesn't that just feel like the kind of move the Jets would make and it would just torpedo their team? I mean, historically, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. I, I don't know. So it makes sense that they're at, uh, going after a veteran. Car might be a little cheaper, might be easier to get him, you know, on board and, and have him. I mean, he's he'd be all about like team guy, whereas Rogers, you'd have to, you know, massage his personality and work around what he likes offensively, I think. But, you know, he's, he's Aaron Rodgers. It would be an interesting pairing, Aaron Rodgers in New York. Hey, so Eric, before we let you go, last time we saw Tom Brady become like a true free agent, there wasn't a big market. 19 was obviously not one of his better seasons. Now, we would later find out that's because the line was bad. Gronk had retired. He didn't have a lot of weapons. Edelman, by the end, was banged up. So he didn't have a lot of suitors. It was like San Francisco thought that Jimmy was a better option than Tom Brady. Tennessee thought that Ryan Tannehill was a better option. And if you look at it, this year, we're seeing the Raiders with the obvious connection to Josh McDaniels. But, I mean, they're seventh, right? So, I mean, they could even go young if Josh wanted to do that. He's not getting fired anytime soon based on the contract. Tennessee, I don't know how that would make sense for Tom just because I don't think the team right now is that particularly good. San Francisco, I mean, we'll see what happens with the Purdy situation, but that seems like that's not a likely one either. I guess Miami because of the connection before with the tampering. And then I guess I mentioned <laughs> the Jets earlier. But do you think this is going to yeah. be similar where there's not a big market for Tom? I, I, You know, it wouldn't shock me. And it's not that, like, obviously people are going to praise Tom and say, hey, he's the GOAT and everything. Number one, they probably watched what happened this year. They probably understand that that some of what went down was, was his fault, right? And it, whether it was... You know, his body language is, is, you know, yelling at guys on the sideline, throwing tablets, whatever, or missing on throws, you know, that sort of thing. So there is a football aspect of it, and there's a Tom aspect of it. When you get Tom, like we were talking about with Rodgers, you, you, you have to have some a system in place to kind of take care of him a little bit, make sure everything's set up. I mean, there's no better team that understands that than Josh and, and the Raiders, right? So 
that makes it such an obvious connection. Uh, and the fact that they have Devante and, and, and the tight end and, uh, you know, obviously Hunter Renfro could be the, the, <laughs> the Edelman slash yeah. Walker type, you know, <laughs> but, um, yeah, I, I have a hard time like cooking up another team and, and, and trying to make it work. I mean, for all the reasons you laid out, I thought you said it beautifully, like either they don't have the money, they don't have the talent around them. They're not in a position to win or they're a San Francisco team, which I'm sure Brady would love to play for, but they've got this Trey Lance situation. They've got Purdy. They have to figure it all out. You know, is giving Brady a one-year trial run the the best plan at this time? I don't know. So it might be one or two suitors. I don't know. Yeah, it'll be fun to watch, no doubt. We'll see where Tom Brady ends up next season. We know he's going to play. There's no chance he can retire after the way that it ended. So, I mean, he's going to be back no matter where it is. All right, that is Eric Edholm from NFL Media, NFL.com. Make sure to read his stuff as the NFL draft is coming soon. Eric, thanks so much for the time, man. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me, man. All right, coming up next, we'll get into the bees and take a couple of your calls. This episode is brought to you by Lincoln in the all-new 2024 Nautilus Hybrid, featuring a customizable 48-inch panoramic display, available Revel audio system, and available perfect position front seats with active motion massage. Oh, my God. The world isn't wide enough. Visit Lincoln.com to learn more. Some models, trims, and features may not be available or may be subject to change. Check with your local retailer for current information. Lincoln and Nautilus are trademarks of Ford or its affiliates. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. If you're busy like me and you're trying to catch your kids' games, it's important to have somewhere where you can go to find a good hotel. We're all over the place. Sometimes... You know, we're in Florida, we'll be in New York. You want to take the wife on a quick vacation and get away? Whether you're looking for a relaxing getaway or heading out of town to see the playoffs, Hotels.com app has a perfect hotel for every trip. Compare up to five hotels side by side so you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings without having to switch back and forth between options. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Great stuff there from Eric Edholm from NFL.com, NFL Media. Make sure to read his stuff when we get closer to the draft. He's really good on the draft stuff, really good there. And I really am interested to see if the Patriots go big game hunting in the receiver market because it would just be nice if they had a guy that we knew was going to be the number one weapon. They could depend on that guy. So we'll see if that's the case, if Belichick gets involved in that this upcoming offseason. All right, let's get to a couple of calls. That number is 617-396-7172, 617-396-7172. Yeah, hi, Dave, calling from Bangor. Um, saw your article about the Red Sox. I don't think uh, Bloom uh, is, is the worst ever. Uh, Trevor Story, yeah, that was a huge mistake. Um, but we really don't know uh, some of these trades. Uh, we don't know uh, if Benellis is going to work out, David Hamilton, the guys that uh, we traded for uh, with uh, Hunter Renfro when we get Jackie Bradley back. Also, uh, I mean, Theo had some big mistakes, too. I mean, he was supposed to be a genius, and he signed Carl Crawford, and he traded away Anthony Rizzo. We all know all about that. Uh, Dombrowski, he was the guy that uh, failed to sign uh, Mookie and Xander when they were younger, uh, and then uh, once they get uh, too close to free agency, it's like a magnet, and there, there wasn't much that uh, uh, Bloom could have done. Now, he he did find some reclamation projects, Garrett Whitlock, Rob Refsnyder, uh, and Christian Arroyo was a guy that was a number one pick, I know, and so those are three pluses for him, 
And, but there's a lot of question marks. We don't know how Yoshida obviously is going to work out. Will Kike Hernandez bounce back? Um, also, the guys that he signed, I mean, Justin Turner is pretty old, but he can still hit. Uh, Ken Lee Jansen, Chris Martin, Jolie Rodriguez. There's a lot of question marks. To call him the worst ever, I think, is absurd. I think that's an exaggeration. Uh, obviously, he, he was not responsible for the Chris Sale signing. Uh, and I, I think one thing, people are a little tired of the reclamation projects like Nico Goodrum. I mean, come on. Uh, the guy's 31. We know what he is. He's 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 a marginal major, major league player. Uh, they could have just re-signed Chavis. He was out there, and Chavis might actually still turn into something. Uh, he probably strikes out too much, and uh, he's probably not going to make it in the major leagues. But there's still a chance that he could do it. Uh, Nico Goodrum, we we know what he is, and he, he's he's a lot better at baseball than I am. But he's he's a marginal major leaguer. Anyway, those are my comments about. Uh, Heim Bloom, thanks for your time. All right, so there's a lot of meat on the bone there with your comments on Heim. So let's get to a couple of them. So the first thing is story. Yeah, that's an atrocious contract. It made no sense. And the thing that aggravated me about that is this past offseason and towards the end of the season, they kept saying that Xander Bogarts is their number one priority when for a year and a half we've been saying they signed Trevor Story to be the replacement, and that's exactly what happened. They had no interest in bringing Xander Bogarts back whatsoever. I wouldn't put the Dombrowski situation not signing Devers on Dombrowski. There was some momentum to, or at least there was some interest after the 2019 season, the year that Dombrowski was fired, there was some interest there that maybe they would go to Devers with a contract then. Obviously, that didn't happen. We're in a situation now where Devers just got his contract extension, but I don't really care that Devers just got it. He's paid now. So look, I'm sure the ownership group would have rather a deal got done earlier with Devers, but the point is they got the deal done. So I don't have an issue with the Devers contract whatsoever. That's the going rate, especially when you get that far down the road. Now, in terms of some of the other moves in what Heim has or has not done, you mentioned the Hunter Renfro thing. I still have an issue with that. Okay, maybe these guys are going to be good down the road. The guys you mentioned, Hamilton and Benellis, that certainly could be the case. Although Benellis struck out a shit ton this past season in the minor leagues. Now, look, that could change. Those guys could be good. And I've said on multiple occasions, I never had a problem I've never had a problem with that trade in and of itself in a vacuum where you traded Hunter Renfro for two prospects and Jackie Bradley Jr. You're actually paid more money in that. So essentially you bought the prospects. I have no problem with that. The problem is that they didn't replace that guy at the major league level. They didn't replace Hunter Renfro in right field for the Boston Red Sox to play in major league baseball. Great. You stockpiled your farm system, but you didn't give the manager, and you didn't give the team a starting everyday right fielder. Instead, it was Jackie Bradley Jr. That's the issue I had when it came to that. Now, in terms of some of the other stuff with Bloom, you can certainly look to the Matt Barnes deal, which we all know that Matt Barnes breaks down in the second half of the season. The lone exception would be 2018 when they won the World Series where he was red hot going into the playoffs. But if you look at this, there was no reason to give Matt Barnes an extension in 2021, midway through the season on July 11th. Since that date, Matt Barnes... 247 opponents batting average. That was 168th out of 218 relievers, minimum 50 innings. 150 whip, 204th out of 218. 12% walk rate, 193rd out of 218. 9.7% strikeout to walk rate. That was 200th out of 218 relievers. So he's not even striking out guys at this point. 487 ERA, 197th. 44.9% hard hit rate. That's balls off the bat, 95 plus miles an hour, 208th out of 218 relievers. So the history of Matt Barnes, go back to 19 and go back to 
his previous seasons, he has struggled down the stretch of seasons. And for some inexplicable reason, you gave him that contract. And now you're DFAing the guy. I don't have a problem with them DFAing him because I've seen better stretches. And I know people like dislike Ryan Brazier. I've seen much better stretches from Ryan Brazier where everything is on the ground in terms of the launch angle compared to a guy like Matt Barnes. So I, I don't have an issue with moving on from him. And I did have an issue, of course, with the initial contract. But all in all, I, I don't know how anybody could argue that Bloom's done a good job. It's not one of these things where you have to wait and see. We just saw what happened last season in terms of what he did to the major league level. And I keep coming back to this. I love the idea that he's building up the farm system. But that doesn't mean that your major league roster needed to suffer the way that it did last year where it was just incomplete and you're trotting guys out there at first base in the Franchi Corderos of the world that have never played that position whatsoever. All right, great stuff as always on the calls. I did want to get to the Bees because a rare loss for them tonight as they lose to the Tampa Bay Lightning 3-2. to And just going through this game, you had the early power play goal for the Lightning. And then you could tell that these teams really don't like each other. Clifton and Perry get into it. They go at it. And then you start to look at this where the Bees had chances early on. Like Zaka couldn't finish on a really nice feed from Grizzlick. And it's Vasilevsky in the net, so the guy's an outstanding goaltender, the best of his generation, if you will. But you had an opportunity there. If you're Zaka to finish, he couldn't do that. And then there was another opportunity early where the puck got behind Vasilevsky and Coyle just could not get to it. And then you think about keeping you in this game was Olmark with 642 left in that first period where you're down. He makes an unbelievable save on Braden Point on the power play. And then the Bruins get back into this four on four, the Marshan goal. The bees had the lightning all over the place on this one. All right, so then you get a scare where McAvoy goes down. Now, good thing is that McAvoy did come back into this game because you're worried. It's his shoulder. He goes into the boards. That wasn't a good thing to see, but McAvoy did come back into the game. Okay, then you have a really controversial situation there with the second goal from the lightning where Kucherov ends up scoring off the faceoff that Stamkos wins where he went way too early. Like that should have been blown dead where Stamkos is in there way too early. That should have been a situation where they blow that dead. There's no reason that Kucherov should have been able to get a shot off. We've seen this all season long where they would blow that thing off and they didn't tonight for some inexplicable reason. So the bees go down to one, but then they respond like the Bruins have all season long, a little bit of adversity. What do they do? Pasta with pasta and the Krejci, Zaka line, come up with a goal. Pasta just dangling around, finds Krejci, then Krejci finds Zaka. They end up scoring, and you get to a 2-2 game. But then in the third period, the Bruins, it just felt like they were completely outplayed, right? Where they end up in terms of the Corsi rating, which is shots on goals, block shots, and shots wide of the net, 21-12 to in favor of the Lightning in that third period. They just really weren't in it. You had the goal where basically Brandon Carlo just ran into Allmark. So in that third period, the Bruins, which we very rarely have seen this year, they were just not themselves. It's like one of the rare periods you look at the Bruins and say, because they've really owned the third period. They've been the best team of the NHL. They've been the best third period team of the NHL. But I just chalked this up to you played a really good team. The one good thing about this coming out of this game is it made me think of sort of the playoff situation with the Bruins, where they're so far ahead in terms of the points in the division that no matter what, it's going to be the Lightning and it's going to be the Leafs in the second round. So you're going to eliminate one of those teams. Both those teams are really good and they're going to have to go up against each other. And the Bruins are going to get the last team in terms of the wild card situation. Right now, it looks like that could be Washington. So the Bruins could have a relatively easy first round playoff series. And these other two teams, the Lightning and the Leafs, one of them is going to be eliminated relatively early in the playoffs by relatively early, I mean, in the first round. So that's the one real positive to take out of this game tonight. If you're looking for a silver lining, that would be it. All right, time now to get to our greatest Boston bet of the week. 
And after I sort of hammered the Celtics for some of the poor play tonight, I did want to give you this because I don't think you're going to get this at a better number going forward. The Celtics right now to win the NBA Finals are at plus 390. I feel like might as well put some money on that at plus 390. Also, if you want to look at the East, that's plus 180. You could bet on both those. Thanks to our friends at FanDuel, our greatest boss and bet of the week. But might as well get that done now. I wouldn't wait much longer because what happens is we get injuries down the stretch of the season. We have situations where teams start tanking. So you just want to get your money in on that now. All right. As always, make sure to get your voicemails in 617-396-7172, 617-396-7172. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Strudy for producing this podcast, and we'll chat in a couple of days. This episode is brought to you by Lincoln in the all-new 2024 Nautilus Hybrid, featuring a customizable 48-inch panoramic display, available Revel audio system, and available perfect position front seats with active motion massage. Oh, my God. The world isn't wide enough. Visit Lincoln.com to learn more. Some models, trims, and features may not be available or may be subject to change. Check with your local retailer for current information. Lincoln and Nautilus are trademarks of Ford, or its affiliates. This episode is brought to you by Empower. You got money questions like, can I retire early? What are my best savings options? Can I afford to pay for my kid's education? Luckily, Empower has all the answers. With Empower's real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you get clarity on your real-life financial goals. So join 18 million Americans and Empower What's Next. Start today at Empower.com. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Sponsored by Empower, not an endorsement or a statement of satisfaction by a client.